chose the subject of equanimity to speak about because it's a very important uh, practice, it's a very important quality of heart to be reminded of, to understand, and to see if we can really um, inculcate it in our practice, especially when we go out into the world and uh, face what's going on. It's like um, Sally said this morning, it's the same old thing. It's not, nothing really different out there. No big thing has really happened. Um, so the ups and downs of the world uh, are still happening there. And uh, for those who are remaining for uh, the continuation of your retreat, equanimity also very important. To be able to face the ups and downs of this uh, time of inner quiet where we see a lot going on inside. So the, I like to call this talk Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. Seeing the World with Quiet Eyes. Because some years ago, I came across a writing by the Reverend Howard Thurman, an African-American great man. Uh, he was a co-founder of the Church of the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And this, the writing, a short couple of paragraphs here has continued to inspire me in my own practice of equanimity. So this is from a collection of his meditations entitled Deep is the Hunger. Deep is the Hunger. How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources of, for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? With quiet eyes and tranquil spirit. So this seeing the world with quiet eyes is one of the subjective experiences of equanimity. Equanimity being that very calm, inner quiet balance that we sense inside where it's not kind of going into extremes in our mind and heart. And it's also spacious, a very uh, big space that we can put everything into. In addition, it's staying connected to what's happening instead of going far away or pushing away. So this equanimity is an important subject to reflect upon because especially of these times we live in. It's really hard for my own heart to navigate my way through the injustice the confusion and the sadness of seeing how things are sometimes. And I have to make a check all the time in my own heart of how I'm uh, relating to what's going on in the outer world. Or when I'm in retreat, it's um, putting a check on what's going on inwardly in relationship to the thoughts I have or to the emotions that come up. Can I bring a sense of equanimity there as well? 
not just to what's happening in the outer world, but also what's happening in this inner world. So this talk is for whether we're staying or leaving. What's the terrain of the mind and heart? How can we navigate it? So it's really perplexing to witness, even in ourselves, how much avoidance and delusion there is and the frustration of not knowing what to do about it within ourselves or in the world. We live in a time when the speed of information and the accessibility uh, can trigger us unknowingly into reactivity, which is the opposite of equanimity. And I don't know about you, but when I take a a fast from the news, uh, just being away from all that people tweet in the world, and uh, including my own family, it's really, <laughs> it's really such a relaxing time for me, just to be away from that. So strong emotions come up in myself, and I know in people around me, and people like you who are in retreat like this and seeing what's going on within oneself. Strong emotions rise up and of course we're only human. Uh, We respond, we react to the world and um, how can we come to a place of clearly seeing without uh, letting the habit patterns of the manifestations of greed, manifestations of hatred, kind of push and pull us in our lives like a puppet. When Manindra first told me about this when I first met him, he actually just said very straight to me, your life is like being a puppet to your uh, reactivity, to your um, kind of natural reactions to the world and to your family. And I, I really didn't like that. You know, I, <laughs> I said, no, you're, I'm, that's not right. I'm not like a puppet, you know. Uh, but as I got into meditation more, I saw it's true. You know, that when it's something, a certain predicament arises, I react. I, it's less, a lot less now, but still I see the reactivity of the mind and heart to what's happening around me, And something happens even inside of me, in my emotion, life. And I react to that too with judgment or self-criticism, self-deprecation. So it's this unrecognized reactivity, which is the opposite of equanimity, that can add to the disharmony and hurt that's already present in life uh, around us. Or it can add to the disharmony and hurt that we add to our own lives, to our own karmic stream. So here we learn to slow down, which is a great, wonderful thing in itself. We learn to do less, to feel the earth beneath our feet, to give ourselves a gift of sitting and walking quietly, to rest our weary bodies and minds, to sometimes, or maybe more times than usual, feel a sense of deep safety. To find that place within us, that inner refuge, which we don't have space and time for in our lives because we're so busy being responsible or just um, 
active in our restless and active in our lives. So we're learning how to experience life more clearly here. Find wisdom to speak or act in a really beneficial, impactful way in our lives. I came across this beautiful um, quote by Thomas Merton, an American Trappist monk who has passed away already, but from the Catholic tradition. He was the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky and a social activist, a student of comparative religion. And he had a great deal of respect for the Buddha Dharma, for this practice and this understanding that we are uh, taking in through our practice, through our listening, through our practicing. He went to Sri Lanka to participate in cross-cultural religious studies and he actually passed away there in a Buddhist country. So this writing by Thomas Merton verifies a lot of what we may have learned to be true for ourselves, experiencing here in this space, quiet space, away from our busy lives. And some of what he says you may not agree with, but they can evoke our own perspectives on this subject. So the subject, uh, the first little reading I'll give is uh, from what he wrote about courageous rest, courageous rest. And this is what we're doing here in our practice of retreat, courageous rest. Some of us, so I'm quoting him now, some of us need to discover we will not begin to live more fully until we have the courage to do and see and taste and experience less than usual. There are times when in order to keep ourselves in existence at all, we simply have to sit back for a while and do nothing. And for a person who has let themselves be drawn completely out of themselves by their activity, nothing is more difficult than to sit still and rest, doing nothing at all. The very act of resting is the hardest and most courageous act a person can perform especially in today's high-speed world. I added that last, especially. (laughs) He lived in the 50s, and I don't know when he died, but I think it was in the 50s or 60s. So then he wrote this also, The Busyness and Violence of Modern Life. He wrote this especially for activists. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common, of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit to too many projects, to want to help everyone in everything, is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of the activist destroys their own inner capacity for peace, the fruitfulness of one's own work, because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. Kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful. So with this rush and pressure of modern life, it's understandable that we can feel vulnerable. And um, in this time of our self-retreat here, we come to know that vulnerability of the first noble truth that we can feel in, in the, after all of this, the rushness, rushing 
of life is taken away, the busyness, all the projects, we begin to experience that first noble truth that we as human beings are quite vulnerable and we actually cover it up sometimes with our busyness. We get agitated, depressed or anxious. This is part of being human. So the Dharma often, and the Buddha often spoke of the eight worldly conditions or the four pairs of vicissitudes that we're constantly feeling the flux of, these four pairs of vicissitudes. And that was what Reverend Thurman was referring to. So these four pairs, or these eight uh, worldly conditions, are praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. These are the ups and downs, the joys and sorrows of life that we experience. And this is natural. This is uh, because we're human. So it's a major reason we feel this existential vulnerability called dukkha in our lives. This oppressiveness, the oppressive nature of reality. Feeling it in our body, feeling it in conditions around us, family, society, the world. It's a vulnerability of being human. So in our lives we have these external conditions that are triggering thoughts, emotions, mental states. And then we have the inner attitudes of how we respond to them. Sometimes these, we see these inner attitudes as our default settings. And, you know, we, if you're like me, it's every time I see one of those default settings that don't work in my life to make things harmonious or more clear, where more wisdom and compassion can arise, I just get this cringing feeling. You know, just kind of, I feel assaulted by my own mind sometimes. And we're usually not so aware of them because in our lives we can be so busy and our attention pulled here and there. But here in our practice, we're totally doing that uh, in our practice of meditation. We're coming to know what's going on inside in relationship to the outer world and in relationship to those um, automatic, spontaneous experiences that we have inwardly. So there are painful outer conditions. That's the first arrow, what the Buddha called the first arrow. And there's painful inner conditions, the second arrow. You know, we are stung, we are hurt by the first one, and then we're hurt by the second one too, because of the lack of equanimity. So I'd like to read something from His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And when I read this, I felt like uh, I wasn't alone. And this was about his giving a Dharma talk. So uh, the preface to this is he's giving a talk on these eight vicissitudes of life. And he mentions them uh, first. And then he says this about them. We all experience these, don't we? Praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, joy and sorrow. Even animals probably have them in some slight measure. I think all of us are concerned in particular about maintaining a good reputation, 
For example, when I'm up here teaching, and he says, on this throne, but I'm not (laughs) saying on this throne for myself, but I compare how it feels here as in the way that he's explaining it. Somewhere in the back of my mind, he says, there appears a thought, how am I doing? <laughs> how are people going to react to this? Are they going to praise me? Oh, oh no, he says, maybe not, <laughs> right in his explanation here. Will people criticize me? Whenever this happens, I need to catch myself and say, look, Now that I'm here transmitting these Dharma teachings, I should not allow myself to be affected like this by the eight worldly conditions. However, we will find that hopes and fears and discursive thoughts of every description will come to our minds. The eight worldly concerns can creep upon us quite sneakily, even when we do something virtuous. They will try to sneak in. This this is how I feel up here. In between, you know, the pauses, I'm wondering, oh, I wonder how you're going to think about this. <laughs> Are you going to praise or blame me? Um, and so, it, it, it's true. You know, when I'm a yogi out there, I have those feelings about what's being said. Oh, oh that doesn't feel right to me, or I don't agree with that, and so forth and so on. So um, here in this story is an example of how we're all painfully affected by our own hurtful habit patterns. We're painfully uh, uh, feeling them, how we are feeling assaulted by our own thinking patterns. So there's a lot of unpredictable outer conditions. You, you know that, we can't control that. But the unseen habit patterns coming from within that are constantly bombarding us, we, have, we can do something about that. And a lot has to do with this practice of equanimity. So I see that without equanimity, it's no wonder I can feel closed down and not connected sometimes. Don't feel connected to what's going on out there sometimes because I'm not connected to my own inner world. If it's hurtful, trying to avoid it. If it's pleasant, trying to hang on to it. So we get overwhelmed with anxiety. We don't want to feel sometimes. There's a lot of occurrence nowadays of um, people not being able to feel their emotions. And this is really sad. So we get disconnected from our own hearts. We feel so discombobulated that we can't respond compassionately or wisely. So there are really important questions to ask ourselves uh, in this practice. How can we stay open and connected to the outer conditions as well as to the inner conditions of our hearts and minds that can bring some abiding sense of inner balance and inner peace? How can we see clearly, inwardly, and outwardly so that we're really intelligent about our lives, not just about the political scene or the social scene, uh, but we're really intelligent about this scene, this inner scene. We can read as much as we want 
and read as many news articles and see what's going on about what's going on environmentally, the, the just sad injustice that's happening in the world and uh, environmentally. But do we know this inner world? Do we know it as much as we put all the energy and know the outer world? So this is a beauty of our being here together. So when we're sensing clearly in the inner world, we know what to do outwardly. We have power to do that. Because what we have the power to do is if we can sense inwardly that there's some form of hatred or attachment a strong attachment or self-righteous indignation that kind of doesn't really help but we can refrain from acting and speaking maybe just in that moment or we take some time before we act or we speak that's what we have control over or if we know that it's wholesome that we're really clear about what's going on in here and what's going on out there then we see that there are wholesome qualities of mind there and we can act. We can say something. And we're really powerful then. So we have an appropriate response to life, an effective response to conditions instead of the automatic reactivity, the default settings that we're trying to get a hold of here to see clearly. So otherwise we're reacting to the situation through unconscious habit patterns. More suffering, more confusion added to the world then. And we're adding it to our own karmic stream too because every time we react with an unwholesome habit pattern it goes back into the karmic stream to come up again. We have to face it again and again and again. When we put words or action to something unwholesome, it becomes strong karma. When we can just see it in the mind and not act on it, not put any words to it, the karma is weakened then. That's what's so important about seeing clearly in ourselves. So the second question I usually ask myself um, is how can I stay aware yet compassionate not just to people out there, but to myself when I react. So we need this quality of equanimity to accompany our awareness, to be able to navigate this inner terrain of our hearts and minds, the layers that they're hiding under, the crevices, the hiding places of reactivity in these default settings. One person um, in retreat, a yogi, friend of mine said, oh, they're the cow paths of my mind. Uh, because we were in Santa Rosa practicing then when there were some cows around. And it was, um, that was a long time ago when there were some fields around. And um, she had been walking around in the fields and kind of fell into some of those cow paths. So she was uh, saying, oh, these are the cow paths of my own mind. Those default settings. But we need this quality of equanimity well, so uh, in a deep sense, in a powerful sense, so we can know the ups and downs of our inner life. And we can be careful 
that we're not responding to life with an unconscious reactivity. So equanimity gives us that care, not just the care, but the carefulness of our lives. So we're careful. It gives us the carefulness and also the power to choose how we're going to respond to life. So this subjective experience of equanimity is um, a spacious, calm balance. Spacious is a, is a word that we don't often define equanimity with. It's not like balancing on a razor's edge, but we feel that we're just really well grounded. One of the a metaphors that's given in the ancient texts of equanimity is it's like a mountain, a mountain that has a very wide base. So nothing can topple it. And um, whatever whatever weather patterns come about on that base of that very strong, uh, wide-based mountain. I live on one, which is Mount Haleakala on Maui. Whatever storms come, whatever winds come, whatever um, is kind of thrown out in the weather patterns of our own mind, we don't get toppled over by it. We don't get kind of wiped out by it. But there's this spaciousness and this calmness and this well-groundedness to be balanced in life. So it allows this mind and heart to be big enough to contain all that life presents. Because usually what happens is when it's not pleasant, we avoid it or we push it away. If it's pleasant, we want to hold on to it. And we're constantly picking and choosing and we actually live in this narrow place in life when we do that. But when we can live with equanimity, we live in this very wide, spacious place. The Buddha said in the Madhyama Nikaya, develop a mind that is vast like space, where experiences both pleasant and unpleasant can appear and disappear without conflict, struggle, or harm. Rest in a mind that is vast like space. So I'd actually like to give a woman's point of view now. Uh, This is from the poetess of the 9th century Japan, Izumi Shikibu. And she said, Watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. And that feels so gentle and beautiful because um, this is what we're doing here. There's no part left out. And like um, Nisha was saying uh, so beautifully the other evening, we all belong and all parts of us belong. And when we can accept all parts of us, maybe we can start to accept all of us in our lives. Watching the moon at midnight, solitary mid-sky, I knew myself completely, no part left out. So this is what the Buddha is asking us to do. To take that awareness and to face every single part of what this mind and body continuum is made out of. 
everything of the body, every part of the mind and heart. No part left out. Seeing in the shadow parts, in the crevices, underneath the layers of delusion. So to really survive and thrive as a human being, we have to have a big enough space in this mind and heart to contain all that comes to us in in this experience and not push things away, not try to hold on because we want the pleasantness to stay. Just be willing to be with how it comes and goes. Enjoy what comes that's pleasant. Learn from what comes that's unpleasant. So this is from Don Juan to Carlos Castaneda. The art of being a spiritual warrior is to balance the terror of being human with the wonder of being human. So I'd like to speak of people I know of that must have had a great deal of equanimity. Nelson Mandela became the anti-apartheid revolutionary president of South Africa. And he was imprisoned for 27 years. He was one of the most honored activists for human rights and won a Nobel Peace Prize. He must have had the potential of equanimity in him, like we all do have that potential, where when he was in prison he really honed that quality within him. He was able to face so many ups and downs of his prison life and of his life after that. He must have held all of life in a vast space. At least that's the way I experience his life and what I know of it. So it's in this vast, restful, clear space that there can be a lot of wisdom seeing through the veils of our habit patterns, of avoiding, ignoring, confusion, aversion, attachment. Seeing the emptiness, the ephemerality of them, the impermanent nature of them. It takes equanimity to see that. So it's just this clear space of seeing things as they really are, deeply. The truth of the moment, the truth of the situation, the truth of our family, the truth of our society, really facing it squarely, making a clear assessment, compassionate understanding of what's happening. Because then we can be intelligent enough to take the most skillful action when we need to, when it's called for. Or to know when we don't need to say anything or do anything, which is an option we don't often take in our world, in our perhaps just in our particular society. We think that we just have to do something to take action right away instead of waiting and listening to our heart or maybe listening to the hearts of others first before we do or say something to listen to the cries of the world, to listen to the wise ones who have responded in ways that know maybe actions to take that are helpful. So in order to see clearly, we have to be soberingly honest with ourselves. We have to have a true sense of agency 
We can have this sense of agency when we know ourselves because then we know what we're going to act with, what we're going to say with, where we're coming from. So it's a clear view of reality, of everything, of life within us, around us. And sometimes when I know I'm not seeing clearly, I use an equanimity phrase that says, it says my intention, my intention is, may I open to the truth of life right now. This truth that I'm faced with in this moment, or these conditions in my family life right now, may I open to that. So it's this spaciousness that I'm opening to instead of being closed down to it. So sometimes I, I just need to say a very simple thing that this is how it is right now in my heart. This is how it is around me. That's one experience of equanimity, of a, an experience I can bring equanimity to. This is how it is around me. This is how it is in me. And I'm not saying that as a way that I, I'm a doormat to what's happening. I'm saying that in a way to say, I'm going to be intelligent about what's going on around me and within me. I'm not going to let myself hide from myself or just look out there and see what I want to see or see what I don't like seeing and complain about it. So I just want to make a clear assessment. So that's that intention. This is what's happening right now around me. That's a clear intention. This is what's happening right now inside of me. That's a clear intention to see that. And maybe it doesn't always come, come true, but at least I'm turning in that direction. These are loving statements. These are statements of respect for oneself accepting the everythingness of life and not yet and yet not holding on to how i think should it should be but maybe i can see a, a place of where things can change and i can do something about that or i can i can call out a wrong i can call out some a hurt or a harm and be strong about that and when you call it out with an equanimous heart, and sometimes it has to be a very loud voice, you will be heard in a way that people know you know what you're saying from this calm place. So it's seeing this equanimity is seeing clearly, number one, caring deeply, number two, and acting wisely, number three. It includes all of that. It also includes the action at the right time or the speech at the right time. So equanimity consists of all these major attitudes of life. The Buddha would say, for one who develops a deep abiding equanimity, it's a natural law to know and see things as they really are. To know the Dhamma. So this is what natural law of uh, is seen through equanimity. I witnessed a really strong and steady balance uh, of equanimity with a yogi friend of mine <clears throat> who said that her practice of equanimity really helped her. 
through difficult times. So I've been given permission to tell her story. So some years ago, one of her grown sons had disappeared. He was in his early 20s. And of course, we were all very concerned about uh, the family and about what happened to this son. So the family did the best they could to find out what happened and where he was, but they were not able to discover everything. His friends were all kind of hush-hush about it too. So there was some sense that they didn't know what to do. They did everything they could do, but then they finally had to just let it be and stay open to possibilities of learning more clues. So really... She kept an inner vigilance and she kept her prayers going uh, for her son. She had a lot of steadiness and a lot of equanimity and she was learning the equanimity practice along with Metta um, actually during a a retreat that she was taking in Maui with me. And this happened, uh, this loss happened after that. So there was great loss and there was a mystery it was really a mystery. There's a lot of sorrow and pain. And her phrase of equanimity was, all beings have their own journey. And she added this understanding to it, though we do not know what it is or understand it. Because a lot of times I have four grown children of myself and uh, that are grown already and they themselves have children. So I have six grandchildren. And I go through this you have your own journey a lot in my life. They're all different from one another, very different journeys. And and then my grandchildren who are, well, I have one in her 20s now. And boy, has she gone through a journey. So for me to be able to say all beings have their own journey, a lot of the rest of my understanding is, though I don't know what your journey is, where it's come from. I don't understand it. I just have to open to. It's your journey. I can't control it. So that was her phrase. All beings have their own journey. And eventually she and her husband traveled to Europe to be with a daughter who lived there and who was going to be giving birth to their first grandchild and they wanted to have some joy in their life so that's what they did they went there just before they left her son who had disappeared appeared so there was with this son there was a lot of uh, sadness there was a lot of loss and then there was gain and then there was happiness so she experienced with this one son just a lot some of those vicissitudes right with that experience with that one child of hers. So after the experience of that loss and sorrow, they regained their son. There was joy. And many of us know this. You you have had those experiences already. Joy and sorrow, gain and loss. So when they arrived at their daughter's birthplace, um, the daughter gave birth to a beautiful child. So it was joyful. And there was a gain in the family, another child, um, another uh, young person to have their wonderful experiences around. But not long after they were there, they got a call and got news of another son, 
a son who was a bit younger than the other one, and he tragically died. He was in his early 20s as well, and um, my friend was on a Buddhist path, on the Shambhala path with him, and they had a wonderful relationship. So this was a deep, deep loss for, for her. So here we have the big one, the big, you know, up and down, the birth and death, the happiness of a new grandchild, the loss and grief of a son, the ultimate sorrow. So though we see it all around us every day, until it happens to us, it doesn't become real. So this started happening in my life, you know, the death in my life around me. Um, Although I worked for a cemetery and mortuary for 20 years in Hawaii, um, I saw it all around me, but when it happened nearby uh, in my family, it was really, I thought I knew about sorrow and death, but I didn't know until it really happened close to me. So it's good to ponder on that every day. So we met in Oregon, and um, after the, the service she gave for her son, and she wrote to me after that, she said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing Alex alongside with the love and joy of who he was. I'm staying connected. So what she meant there, I'll pause there, what she meant there was she's staying connected with the loss of her son. She still felt that, but she also felt the love in her heart. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or make us stronger, and I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dharma has been very helpful. So of course, she, like all mothers, beings, they still have challenges. And she has her feelings about it. And she's learned to be with her inner feelings. This is the way it is right now in my heart. As well as being able to say, this is the way it is right now in my outer life. I've lost this son. And that's a great tragedy for her. So this is the way it is in the situation in my life. This is how I feel inside. This is the way it is about that. So both those sides are really, really important in our equanimity practice. So I I was um, want to make another point about this especially uh, about these two sides to bring equanimity to, not just outer conditions, but inner conditions. When we have been in a situation where we've already blown it, you know, we've already um, did that, made that speech or that behavior that was hurtful to someone else and also to our own karmic stream, and we just, okay, that's the way it is, you know, in the outer conditions, we still have a second choice, even though we were reactive there, we have a second choice 
to look at what's happening in our inner conditions and bring equanimity there and have a chance to not react to our own reactivity. So outer conditions happen, reactivity to that, and we bring our uh, equanimity practice to this reactivity, to this place where we feel I'm not good enough or I can't do it or um, whatever, I'm angry at myself for doing this. So bring our our um, clarity of attention there with equanimity. So in this example, um, I was dealing with a a, um, a neighbor who came to our house, and she was very upset because of the the boundary lines, and we were mowing close on our side of the boundary lines, but so close to hers that it was taking down the brush that was kind of giving her a sense of separation between um, our lots, our property. So she was very upset about that because we were actually cutting down big bushes too. So we had a heated emotional conversation and I was making a case for that we have a right to do this, but she made her own case and she was quite angry about it. So I noticed how strongly she felt about this. And so I thought to practice equanimity there and I, with the outer conditions, I said, okay, this is the way it is right now for her. Because this is the way it is for her, I'd better be quiet for a while because I know and I took my attention here this is the way it is for me in here I felt quite reactive you know I I really just wanted to get up and yell back at her and I did you know I didn't yell I think but I raised my voice and uh, I could have said some four-letter words (laughs) I'm I'm not beyond that actually I I try to be gracious in front of an audience but um, so I realize I better not say anything. His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls this the inner disarmament. So I said, okay, I better do that. So I did say out loud to this person, I think I'd better not say anything now because I'm not really very clear about what's going on and about myself. And so she, she said, that's true you're not very clear right now. And uh, I just, you know, oh, everything inside of me just felt like I just uh, had to hold back. You know, how you can feel it coming out of your arms. Like, I, I don't naturally, I don't punch people at all, but I could, I could feel like that could happen in that moment. You know, she just really got my goat then. So... That was another opportunity, you know. That was kind of like a third arrow, but we have many more arrows than that. <laughs> so just like, okay, this is how it is in my heart right now about that. So that's why that metaphor of the sky is used, you know, to give it a lot of space. And you don't have to kind of go to your narrow mind of like, you're going to do this right away. You can just give it a lot of space. This is what the conditions are right now. So um, as I engage in, in this, these facets of my life, 
You know, I'm always asking myself, am I seeing this with quiet eyes? And there's a lot more times now than like 10 years ago when I would say something or I'd do something. But now I say, wait, pause. You know, it's that moment of patience, that moment of the pause of patience that says, let's wait. Uh, Patience is actually one of the attributes of equanimity. It's close by. So um, discerning whether you're coming from an inner resource that's going to be helpful. And if it's not helpful, can we wait? Can we wait till we can get the right uh, things coming together so we can take action or say what we need to say? I like to use... um, this kind of metaphor of I take the Dharma duct tape out and I <laughs> I just I'm not going to say anything now um, so I want to talk about the the opposites of equanimity a little bit the direct opposite is called the far enemy and it's reactivity So the far enemy reactivity comes in two parts. uh, The various manifestations of aversion and various manifestations of attachment. You're well enough versed in the Dharma, so I don't have to uh, fill those out for you. So in our training here, we're learning how to clearly recognize that, accept that. So we are open to all the attitudes of the mind. That's what we're being trained to see. Uh, Some are beautiful and some are difficult to deal with. And so we just learn to be open to see so we're able to see clearly. I think there was a person who said, and I don't know the author, the spiritual path is one humiliation after another. You know, just get kind of assaulted by our own inner world sometimes, more than the outer world in a way. So this is... um, a story, I, a lot of you have heard this already, but I think it, it has a lot of mileage, so I'm going to tell it again. This is about humiliation and humility. So um, it's a story about Manindraji when he stayed at my house for uh, a little while when he was, um, uh, he had some surgery. I told this story down in the um, a big hall. And when I was talking about Donna, Manindra stayed with me and the family, and um, he did everything with the family. He ate with us, and um, he went with us on whatever we did, on walks, and he even went to work with me um, at the cemetery in the mortuary. He liked going to cemeteries. Um, So he's going to say one thing in this story that I want to explain to you. He's going to say, surrender to the law. And that's a phrase that Manindra used to use that means open to how it is. The law is the dharma, the way things are unfolding. Open to that. So when he was staying with us this one time, he was actually healing from that surgery and I wanted everything to be perfect for him. Of course, I, I gave a talk to the kids and I said, please, can you not fight during this time period? Can you please... Uh, of course, they, they are respectful. They're naturally respectful of their elders and all of that. So I didn't have to go over that. But um, So I gave the family good talking to and they said, we'll try our best. And 
But this evening, uh, when we were having dinner, um, Manindra and I were sitting at the table, and um, we were the first ones there, and Manindra was sitting on my left on this side, and I was sitting here, and, and we were at this kitty corner of the table. And the youngest daughter, who was going through his, her teenage years, was having a screaming match with her father. And it was like so, humi- I felt so humiliated. Why? Because I was so attached to having everything perfect. So I felt embarrassed. I felt like um, I wanted to go out and shout at them, but I'd be doing just the same thing I was getting humiliated by. And they were having this huge fight with one another. So I felt paralyzed also, confused. A lot of um, aversion was coming up. So they were in another room on this side, and we were in the uh, the dining room, which is... um, right next to that and so she ran around us and down the hall and she went into her room on the left side and slammed the door with all her might and it's like oh my god you know I just wanted to either disappear or leave or there were some other things but I won't say and so then her father came after her and her father gives me permission to say this um, he passed away already say, to say this and this was a great father who raised the other children this was his child and so he banged on the door and he said open the door and she said no shouting open the door no open the door or I'll kick the door in go ahead So that's what he did. (laughs) He kicked the door in, you know. And so Menindra at my left side, (laughs) I was, you know, crouching down. He's at my left side and he's just, I don't, I think the family came from didn't have this kind of stuff happen. (laughs) They must have had stuff. but, But he took his right hand and he put it over my left um, forearm and he said surrender to the law this is how it is this is how this is the nature of reality right now that's what the law means the dharma surrender to the law and it was like it first of all his doing that and the way he looked made me feel totally accepted it made me feel like my family was totally accepted. And he just was so gracious and graceful to do that. So I really felt like um, that was the best, you know, equanimity phrase I could ever have, surrender to the law. So I've said that quite a bit (laughs) in my life. So that far enemy of reactivity was right there at the surface you know I didn't have much equanimity because I know inside there were so many things happening I didn't get up and you know hurt or harm but um, inside I hurt or harm myself by not noticing what was going on the near enemy so that's a far enemy reactivity the near enemy is another opposite of equanimity. It's called the near enemy because you it feels like it. It's kind of nearby. So there are several 
uh, manifestations of it. Sometimes it's called indifference. Sometimes it's called apathy. Sometimes it's passivity, where you're really passive. Sometimes complacency. So all of those might uh, vibrate with your way of uh, feeling it. It's called that because um, it can feel like equanimity, but it's not. Sometimes some, I've heard some teachers call it fake equanimity. It's also experienced, and these are these are words um, that I'm offering you that actually yogis have told me about when they feel this near enemy of um, passivity or indifference. It sometimes feels like not caring, just like I don't care. You know, you pass by somebody who's being hurt, and you don't even care to help. Avoid, or or maybe you're protecting yourself, but sometimes you just don't care. Avoiding, being in denial, these are these are words that come from people who have searched inside themselves and seeing this is how they act in an indifferent way. Sometimes there's an emotional emptiness. That was an interesting uh, couple words that I received from someone. Emotional emptiness. Sometimes not really connected to the reality of being human or not really connected to the other human being and what they're experiencing in their life or not even connected to what we're experiencing. It's a distancing. So sometimes I must say that the phrase of all beings, we have this phrase, all beings are the owners of their karma or their actions, their happiness or unhappiness, depends upon their actions and not upon my wishes. This is the longer phrase of equanimity. And... I have whittled it down to all beings have their own journey. So um, maybe it has a sense of coldness when we say that. But actually it's a very wise, it's a very wisdom phrase. And it has a lot of compassion to it. Because we see that people are hurt by their own actions. Or even by their ignorance. They're hurt by it. And hurt other people by it. So maybe we get this sense of resignation or helplessness within us, a feeling like we don't possess a sense of agency. Um, and this, this is a part of that where you know we just feel disconnected with our own power, from our own power. But in fact, if we could really come close to how we're feeling, we can maybe conjure up that equanimity that we possess tremendous power to respond to life situations in a way that can bring about powerful, powerful change. So we're able to see clearly, to care deeply, and to act wisely. So I'd like to um, quote Goethe because this person said something about a sense of agency when we really see that um, what's going on inside and how our approach to what's going on outside has a great deal to do with how what's going on inside and what we're bringing to it. So 
here's the quote from Goethe. I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make a life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis will be escalated or de-escalated and a person humanized or dehumanized. So this says something about agency that we all have. So it's not standing back and be, being passive, which can be one of the ways that we feel uh, equanimity is. That's not equanimity at all. It's when we're really connected to ourselves. We know the truth in here. We know the truth, the reality of what's happening out there. And we're facing it. We're not distancing. We're not avoiding. We're not covering up. We're not trying to make it nice. But we're really seeing it how it is. We need a lot of equanimity, as much of equanimity as we need compassion in our world today. So I'd just like to end with this experience that kind of gives um, a sense of equanimity, that deep, strong um, balance with the vicissitudes of life, as well as that spaciousness that we can put all that, those highs and lows of life in. So I'd just like to... Um, honor one of my teachers, Manindraji. <clears throat> and this was when I was with him in Varanasi a long time ago, several years ago. And this was our last day in India. And um, this is a vision and the strong memory I have of one of the last times that I visited with Manindraji. So it was before dawn, and it was a really warm morning. It was still dark when we went out to uh, take a boat down the Ganges River. And um, Manindraji always wanted me to go down the river with him on, on one of those boats. You know, if you're a Buddhist and you're a teacher, you want to have your students be able to actually come close to people who are dying. Or you might even see a corpse. So Manindra even said to me, maybe we'll see a dead body in the river. I mean, nobody but your teacher, who's a Buddhist, would say that and really want that to happen, you know. <laughs> so we were going, um, got on the boat, and we went along the banks of the river. So on the left side, over on the far side, the horizon, uh, the sun was rising over the um, whatever was there on that side, over the land, over the uh, river. And so it was a new day. It was the birth of a new day. But on the right side, we were going uh, in the, uh, uh, alongside the burning ghats where they were burning dead bodies, dead dead the people who had passed away, families around them. 
So here on the left was new life. Here on the right was the end of life, birth and death. And so there was a great ball of this yellow-orange cresting over the horizon. And just looking at it and just remembering it, there was great joy. There was delight in my mind and heart. But on the other side, there was a lot of sorrow, a lot of sadness. Sometimes we could get close enough to see people wiping their tears and um, hugging one another, being with one another closely. Um, Sorrow, joy and sorrow. And then having my own Dhamma teacher nearby, you know, the... It's kind of a a special thing. I didn't see him all the time. You know, sometimes several years would pass by, but this year I spent time with him. This um, time, about two or three weeks, I think. So there was a lot of happiness, a lot of mudita for having, just having a teacher. Um, Some people say, think that I, I was always nearby him, but I wasn't, you know, I just went to see him when I could, took retreats from him when I could, just like you do with your teachers. So that was on the left and on the right, on the banks, were the poor and destitute sometimes, some in despair, some quite helpless. And so, like in all countries, have that. And so I felt, I saw that too, you know, felt kind of the sadness there, the happiness, the sadness And overall, being in India, there's the beauty of the rawness of it, of the kind of straightforward isness of life. Just how life is. Just opening to the beautiful saris and the ways that are just difficult to see in India. But seeing all of life in this rawness can break your heart open too. So sometimes you can close down, sometimes open up. So there's this great expanse that we have of being able to explore all of life and open to all of it without shutting down, but with really being intelligent in the world. So as... um, Reverend Howard Thurman says, How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit? So let's just sit for a few moments.
So thank you for your kind attention. And I'm sorry I went over the time. Um, so you'll have about maybe 18 minutes to walk and come back in and we'll do our last chanting. And um, so maybe I'll tell you a story, a bedtime story. <laughs> Will that get you in here? We'll see. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, so please go on. Go ahead on. <laughs> 